Uh, my name is Ben Kelly. I am, oh, there we go. I am one of, uh, there we go. I'm one of Father Sean's uh, good friends. Um, I'm his one and only Baptist friend, so that's why I'm not wearing the, the robes and the vestments. All right, I don't know if he would admit to having a Baptist friend, but here I am. So um, I am actually, um, I'm visiting uh, my wife and my family. We're on vacation. We uh, stayed up at Lake Geneva this week, and then, or not Lake Geneva, Geneva on the lake. And then uh, when I told Father Sean that uh, I was going to be up here, he's like, hey, would you like to deliver the sermon? I said, absolutely. So yeah, I'm, uh, I'm a little rusty. I haven't done this in a while, but um, heck, I grew up Baptist, so you get ready for the next hour. Just kidding. Just kidding. So, uh, just a little bit about, uh, you know, uh, where I come from. Uh, the last 15 years, I grew up Baptist. I've been in a Baptist church my whole life. The last 15 years, I've been a part of helping plant two um, thriving churches in the Cincinnati area out of the Acts 29 network. Uh, I come from the Young, Restless, and Reform movement. If you don't know what that is, that's okay. You don't need to know. Father Sean, trust me. If you do know what that is, yes, I understand who let this guy in here. So, but I do want to move quickly today because we've got a lot to cover in Genesis 28 verses 12 or 10 through 22. So as I was writing this sermon today or over this past week, I grew concerned about the time limit. Father Sean said, hey, try to keep it at 23 minutes as best as you can. I was like, oh, this will be easy. I'm used to writing sermons that are 45 minutes long. This, I got this. But as I dove into the text and really started to work through it, I grew concerned because there's so much good stuff in the text, there's so much meat there. I was like, how am I going to, you know, put this in 23 minutes? And I, I grew nervous last weekend, and so I, I sent a text to Father Sean. I said, hey, um, I manuscript preach about how many words long are your sermons? And that guy, he let me sweat for like 24 hours. He did not answer me back. And when he did answer me, he sent me a meme and it had a picture of this guy, had like a 40-foot-long box, and he's trying to put it into a 10-foot-long car. And then the caption underneath it said, your pastor trying to squeeze out every biblical insight he can into a 30-minute sermon. And then he laughed at me. So he said he doesn't uh, do manuscript preaching. So uh, we have a good relationship. We've known each other for about 20 years since college. And um, I'm just, I'm really glad in all seriousness to be here today when I reflected on just the event of getting to deliver the sermon to you, I don't know anyone in my circles who has ever preached in an Anglican church. So the, just the ecumenical unity that Christians from different backgrounds and different denominations and you know, different confessional convictions you know, a little bit. We get to encourage each other in the word of Christ today. So uh, let me pray, and then we're going to dive into this. If you would, bow your heads with me. Uh, Lord God, uh, we just, we humbly come to you, before you, to, to learn about your word, to learn about Jacob, to learn about how you revealed yourself to him graciously. I pray that you, Spirit, would direct my speech, that uh, these would not be my words, but your words that you earnestly want your people to hear. We pray that the people sitting here, that we would have open hearts 
to learn about you, to learn about our sin and how we fall short of your glory and your righteousness. And we pray that we would just soak this up and let you, Spirit, direct our lives from this point. Pray that we respond in worship and we just we respond in love for you. We pray these things in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. So in this text today, we get a view of Jacob's dream. Now, Jacob is often a difficult character to understand in the narratives of Genesis. He's a liar. He's a cheat. He's a deceiver. He's someone I wouldn't want to call a friend necessarily. And yet, he's, he's the person who cheats his own twin brother out of a blessing that was supposed to go to his brother. You see, Jacob deceived his own father and through the machinations of his mother, let's not forget that, he deceived his own father, and he causes his own father heartache, grief, sorrow, and he's, his father is just destroyed because he did not bless Esau. But yet, here in this chapter, we see Jacob actually starts to do something right. And if, if, the, if the destructiveness, the, the lying, is all we knew about Jacob, when we, get, when we get to the next chapter where he is deceived by Laban, we probably wouldn't think much of it. We'd probably think that, ah, Jacob is getting what he deserves. La he goes to Laban, he asks to marry Rachel, Laban deceives him, marries Leah instead, and we think, you know what, Jacob, you got what you deserve. You're a liar and you're a cheat. But that's not where the story ends. And I would say that how we understand Jacob throughout the rest of the text in Genesis, really pivots on how we understand him here today in this narrative. Because it is only by God's intervening grace, it is only by God's revealing himself to Jacob that we can understand later stories about Jacob, where we understand why he went through what he went through with Mary and Rachel, why he wrestles with God, why God asks him his name when he wrestles with God, and why Jacob still wants that blessing from God. We have to understand the promises God gives Jacob here in this text and why he's doing that. And so that's our context today. We want to understand just this revelatory grace for a wretched sinner like Jacob. And so in the text today, it's really broken up into three main sections. Section 1 comprises the verses of 10 through 15, and we, we, we see Jacob's experience of God's revelation. Jacob has the dream, and he experiences God's revelation. And, and I like to say revelatory grace, because anytime God reveals himself to us, it's grace, and I like to be in that practice. So you'll hear me say that a few times. So fifteen through or 10 through 15, we have God's revelatory grace to Jacob. We have Jacob's dream. Verses 16 through 17 give us Jacob's initial reaction to God's grace. And then verses 18 through 22 detail Jacob's response to God really in worship and how he's going to vow to make a new life from hearing what God has to say. Now when we dive into it, in verse 10 we understand that since Jacob has the blessing of his father, he has to go out and get a wife now. 
All right? He's, he's on his way. He's traveling to a new land to get a wife. And this is actually the first time we see Jacob do something where he's actually honoring his father and mother instead of deceiving them. He actually listens to them because back in verse 6 they said, you need to go to this land, this far off land. You need to find a wife. And so Jacob is doing this. And he's going on his way and he comes to a place under the sun or where the sun has gone down and he decides, I'm going to stay here for the night and I'm going to sleep. Now put yourself in Jacob's shoes. Imagine yourself, you're, you're sent off by your parents you're sent off to a strange land. You don't know anybody. There's, there's some distant relation there, but you don't really know one personally. It's going to be a long road. It's going to take Jacob about a month to walk there. It's 550 miles from Beersheba to Haran, where he's going. He's only traveled about 60 miles so far, where he gets to Bethel. All right? So he's only about 10% of the way through the journey. And he gets to this place... And the text doesn't really give us a whole lot of information, but it doesn't sound like there's anybody with Jacob. It sounds like he's alone, and it doesn't sound like he has a lot of possessions with him either, because what does he do in the narrative? He lays his head down on a rock, all right? Now, I don't know about you. I've been camping many times, and I, I don't like camping. Uh, to the sorrow of my wife and my children, they love camping. I just simply do not like it. I can't think of anything worse than in the middle of August sitting around a campfire when it's as hot as it is in here. So if, if you feel me, you know, don't, don't be worried to give an amen out there. So, uh, but it doesn't sound like he's got a lot going on because he's got to use a rock as a pillow. So he's, he's, he's alone. He's, tr he's only 10% of the way through his journey, but he's probably feeling the effects of it because he's gone about 60 miles. And he's got to lay his head down on a rock at night. He, surely he had a bag or something to put his head on. But the text doesn't say that. It says that he, gives us, he, he lays his head down on a rock. And then he has a dream. And in this dream, Jacob sees a ladder, which if we look at the Hebrew, we could also call it a flight of stairs. It's not, it's not necessarily just like a ladder. We would understand it today. Um, but we could call it a flight of stairs. Jacob sees God's servants, who are angels, going up and down this ladder or this flight of stairs. And in Jacob's cultural background, this would have been a very common image for him to see. Uh, the religious beliefs and the other um, religions that surrounded Jacob's area, this was a, a common image where people would talk about the connection between the spiritual realm and the physical realm, how, how God or whatever these other religions believe in is on this side in the spiritual realm, and then you have the people of earth in this physical realm, and there were messengers who would go back and forth. And so this would not have shocked Jacob. This would have been an image that was pretty uh, familiar to him. But there is something very distinct about Jacob's dream. There's an idea or a concept that's different. Jacob's dream is different because at the top of the ladder, or literally the side of it, God has presented himself. God is not going back and forth like his messengers, the angels. God has presented himself. And he's on one side of the ladder and Jacob is on the excuse me, on the other. God reveals himself to Jacob. And this is significant because Jacob is seeing something where the messengers of God are going back and forth, and, and that is typically how it's connected. But you never hear, you know, these kinds of images where God is speaking. It's always the messengers 
going back and forth. And so this type of dream, yes, it would have been common for Jacob, but this is very different. In Jacob's dream, we don't get the usual messenger. We get God himself intervening here. God speaks to Jacob in verses 13 through 15, and he promises Jacob three things. He promises Jacob land, offspring, and he promises to be present with Jacob. These are common, very, very, very common covenantal elements that run throughout the biblical narrative. You can find them everywhere. So if we go all the way to the beginning of the Old Testament, back into Genesis, we see these covenant images. And we go all the way to the end, into Revelation, and I'm going to explain how we get there, but we see these covenant pieces, these elements there. So we go all the way back to the beginning of Genesis, into the garden, with Adam and Eve, God's, God's first children there. These covenant images are present. What does God do? He gives his first children a garden. He gives them land. He tells his first children, be fruitful and multiply. He's expecting that they're going to have children, that they're going to create more image bearers to worship God. And God is present with them in the garden. It talks about how Adam and Eve could walk in the night and, and speak to God. God is there. He's present with them. But once sin is introduced into the garden, the world changes because of our rebellion. The land is taken away. God's people are ushered out of the garden. Childbearing is cursed. It said it will be more difficult to bear children. And God's first children cannot be in the presence of their God. They're, they're taken away. They're ushered out. See, these, these covenants, we, we tend to read over them just kind of, oh, God is promising all these things, you know. I, I do it too, don't worry. But they have great significance because God is setting forth a plan where he says, I'm going to restore what you once had. I'm going to bring that back. And we see this, we see these elements also at the end in the book of Revelation. What do we get? We get a new heavens and a new earth right? We've got a new place for God's people. A place where there's no more, sickness, no more sickness, no more crying. We won't remember sin. We get the multitude of nations worshiping God. That is, that is a direct result of God's saying, I'm going to give you a people. I'm going to help you bear children. I'm going to make you flourish. They all come together. And then who are they worshiping? Well, they're worshiping King Jesus on the throne. We're, who is present with his people. So when you, when you come across these kinds of verses, these covenantal elements, don't read over them. Know that they have just deep, deep, deep relevance to what we're reading across all of Scripture. Because they were given and then they were taken away. Not because God is a bad God. No, they were taken away because of our rebelliousness. We broke that relationship. 
and they're working to be restored. And that's what we see here. And if you haven't, if you haven't picked up on these before, we, we don't want to run over them because these elements, they're demonstrating God's plan of redemption for his people. This is not just a dream Jacob is having. It is a gracious act of God revealing himself and his plan to a person who would otherwise be lost without the grace of God. This is significant, and it's not something that we can just read over time and time again. We, we have to understand the magnitude of what God is promising, what he's working to accomplish for his people. God is going to give land, children, and his own presence. All those things that our first parents lost, we get back in Christ. And once the dream is over, Jacob wakes up, and he realizes that God is present in this place, and he didn't know it. That, that's significant because it's been established since Genesis 3, God's presence has been removed. People looking for God, they can't find him. God has to reveal himself to his people. And he does it to Jacob the scoundrel, Jacob the liar, Jacob the cheat. But what does Jacob do? He responds in worship. He understands the gravity of what is going on here. He understands what has taken place. He understands that God, the God of the universe has graciously revealed himself. And so once Jacob responds in worship and magnifying God, he responds further by making the stone he slept on, his bedrock, his, you know, what he's trying to get his rest on, he makes that a pillar and he calls it Bethel. Bethel literally means the house of God. And Again, this is significant because God's presence has been removed. And now Jacob has a place. He's accepting this gift of covenant with God. He is making a vow with God and saying, Yes, God, you said you are going to be my God, my Lord. You're going to give me land. You're going to give me children. You're going to give me these things. I'm making a vow that I, I want you to be my God and I'm going to live my life in accordance with what you teach, with how I'm supposed to act in being your humble servant. In this passage today, we see a very undeserving person experience the revelation and the grace of God in a, in a tangible way. It, it's a way that's so tangible and so real that it redirects his action in life to a point where he makes this vow to live as God is his God. And he's going to allow God to direct his life. And we see God acting through grace time and time again with Jacob later in the scriptures, detailing how he's going to restore his own people through Jacob. That's why he gets the name Israel. It's just not some coincidence. There's covenant there. See, God is pointing to a greater reality where he will one day redeem his people. Jacob only sees a dark picture of it. He doesn't get the full thing. Jacob doesn't see everything on this side of eternity. He will one day see it fulfilled, but we, we actually get to see the fulfillment. God's, oh, oh, sorry, I think I lost my place. Hold on. See, one day... God is going to redeem his people, and it's going to be through Jacob. God, it's not going to be God's messengers going back and forth. It's going to be God 
speaking directly and coming down to his people. It's a promise where Jacob never sees it finally realized, but we get to see it. Now fast forward into what we were talking about. You're celebrating the Feast of the Transfiguration today. Yes. And so in the Transfiguration, we see Jesus, and we see a similar vision to what Jacob has. We are treated to Jesus being glorified in a majestic state. God is speaking and it's not God's messengers that are going back and forth from heaven. It's Christ himself who is among God's people. And it's God speaking directly to his people. It is only in the person of Christ that we see the fulfillment of what God is promising to Jacob in our text today. Yet we, we do not act this way. We don't understand God's revelation and his grace this way. If we're honest, we're more like another type of people in Genesis. If we go back from Genesis 28 to Genesis 11, where the Tower of Babel, that story, you remember that story, right? People tried to make their own tower to God. They tried to ascend to God and do it their own way. See, there's this gap that exists between God and man. And people, for, for centuries have been trying to bridge that gap on their own. But we can't do it because of our own rebellion and our own sinfulness. You see, some of us, we attempt to ascend to heaven by finding what we think will most fulfill us. And then we chase after that thing as fast and as hard as we can. We find these functional saviors. And we say, oh, I think this is going to fill my life and we chase after it. it, it doesn't matter. It can be a number of things. It doesn't have to be a tower built to the heavens. It can be possessions, money, status, career. See, a lot of times what we do is we take the inheritance and the promise that God has given to his people and we say, yes, Lord, I want that, but I want to do it my own way. And so I'm going to go chase after these other things. We're just like the prodigal son, right? You remember that story? He said, goes to his father and says, I want your inheritance, which is pretty much saying I want you dead. And I'm going to go off and I'm going to spend it on women and booze. And he does that. We do the exact same thing. Don't, and I'm not talking about you or just me. I'm talking about all of us. We do the exact same thing because we make these functional saviors that we think are more powerful than the resurrected Christ and we chase after them as fast as we can. Others of us, we believe that we can ascend to God through our own righteous living. We adopt systems of morals, whether those morals are attuned to a conservative lifestyle of past generations, or there are morals that serve a more progressive and social culture today. Sometimes we just believe that if we believe these morals and this kind of right living, we can make our way to God. The problem is, both of those avenues lead to a self-righteous life, self-righteous thinking that believes I'm better and I know better 
than everyone. And guess what? It doesn't lead you to Christ. It leads you to the mouth of hell. Don't give me that stuff where our culture today is telling us this is how we ought to live. God has told us how we ought to live. We ought to respond to that. Don't, believe the mora- don't necessarily believe the morality that a church culture tells you. God has told you how you ought to live. St. Paul tells you how to live as a church many times in the New Testament. Follow that. His words are the words of life. See, when we do this, when we chase after this kind of self-righteousness, when we think we can ascend the hill through our own righteousness, we're just like the older brother. You know, you know the prodigal son had an older brother, right? The brother who said to his father, this son of yours who wasted your money, and you're doing all this thing, and I, I've kept every rule that you have said. I've done everything for you, and you can't even give me a little lamb to have a feast with my friends. You know what happens to that son at the end of the story, right? Nothing. He gets left outside. Self-righteousness won't get you there, people. Jesus is different. Today we're celebrating the Feast of the Transfiguration where the glory of God was presented to a select few on the mountain along with Moses and Elijah. The transfiguration is a physical reality of what Jacob sees, God with man. The promise of what Jacob is being told in Genesis is fulfilled in Jesus Christ. This is why St. Peter is clarifying it to us in our New Testament reading today. In Jesus, we see that he is the ladder. He is the stairway. He is the way to God. Jesus says that no one gets to the Father except through him. Jesus is the final ladder where we see God's presence among his people. All the promises laid out to Jacob... They're fulfilled in Christ. It's not good enough to replace Christ with something we hope will fulfill us, nor is it good enough to attempt to live righteously on our own. We need someone to take our place. We need someone to take on the wrath that was meant for us because of our rebellion. We must accept a free gift of grace so that we can live with God in communion for all eternity. There's no other way. There was no other way with Jacob. There's no other way for us now. Jesus says, he is the way. We must have Christ. And so what do we do with that? If we're, if we're confronted with these, these covenantal elements that point to Christ, what do we do with it? Well, We've been confronted with God's truth and his revelation. And so we must figure out how to respond. And so just as St. Peter wrote in our New Testament reading today, we are witnesses to what God is doing among his people. And we are called to spread that witness to the ends of the earth. Are you doing that? Do you take the words of Jesus in Matthew 28 seriously? Where he says, go, make disciples, baptize them, teach them what I've taught you? Or is this just a dead ritual for you? You just come here, say a few prayers, 
I got to say, I was having trouble keeping up with you guys, but I love it. But man, it's, it's beautiful. Go eat some bread and wine. No, there's more to it. St. Peter's calling you to be witnesses to what we're talking about today. God has revealed himself to you, and you ought to respond. We respond in confession and repentance. We confess the sin that we use in attempting to distance ourselves from God. Whether we confess for the first time or the thousandth time, we make our sin known, and we turn away from that sin in repentance. The fact that God graciously allows us to even do this should compel us to worship. And in that worship, we need to vow to live righteous lives that are examples of gospel truth. What is worship? We talk about this with my children all the time. We give them a very Presbyterian answer. Sorry, I'm just just not Anglican, but... We say, you know, worship is whatever you're doing for the glory of God. And so, how do we respond to what God is telling us today? To the fact that he broke into a miserable sinner's life and said, this is what I'm going to do for you. We respond in confession and repentance and we live lives of worship. We we are vowing to take the words of Jesus out there and to share him with the people who so desperately need him. Thank you guys so much for this opportunity to get to speak to you today. I have really enjoyed it. Um, Let me pray, and then we will continue the service. Father God, we just uh, thank you so much for your word, for the truth that you have revealed to us, that you have graciously revealed to us. We pray that we reflect on how at times we have acted like Jacob, where we have sought to put distance between us and you, thinking that we can do it our own ways. But we thank you that we get to come to you and say, Lord, we don't want that anymore. Let Let us fall at your knees. Let us worship. Let us repent. Let us confess. We just pray that you, Spirit, would keep this message in us that we would take it not just, not just home for 20 minutes and think about it for the rest of the day, but we think about it for the rest of the week and we would have a sense of urgency in speaking to those that we work with, that we go to school with, that we live with. We want, we want to talk about the gospel of your grace, that you want to restore your people and you want to redeem your people. We thank you for all this. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit.